that Houston Second Baptist, Heather Schneider was 14 when she was molested in the choir room there. And her mother told us, um, you know, the day after that she came home and she slit her wrists. That trauma never really left her. And she died a few years later from a drug overdose that her mom still blames directly on the trauma. And what she says was mishandling of the abuse by Second Baptist officials. They've denied that they mishandled it, however. This is Beliefs, an exploration of ideas behind the news of religion. I'm Bill Baker. A pattern of abuse by clergy widens. A series of articles in the Houston Chronicle reveals an investigation showing over 700 victims of sexual assault in the Southern Baptist Convention. The predators were deacons, pastors, youth pastors, and other church leaders. Lead reporter Robert Downen joins us from Houston to talk about the latest round of spiritual leaders using their positions of influence to commit significant damage to the people who seek divine guidance. Why don't we just get right to it? Robert, uh, tell us how all this started, how you came on to this story and started drilling into it with such vigor. Um, I mean, it started pretty organically. I was a general assignment reporter on the Houston Chronicle's Metro desk. Uh, I'd been here about six months, and I was looking through federal court records one night. Um, I think it might have even been a weekend. I'm not positive. But I came across this uh, lawsuit settlement between Paul Pressler, um, who's a leading Southern Baptist figure. He was the vice president of the convention for a while. He's also an ex Texas judge and has been kind of a kingmaker in, in Houston politics and religion circles for decades now. And I came across this settlement between him and a former youth group member uh, from 2004 for a an assault case, and I just you know started started calling some people um, who have been blogging about this stuff, who have been speaking out about Southern Baptist church abuses for decades now, and they all kind of told me the same thing, which is. This is much more. This is much bigger than one isolated lawsuit or something, and so, pretty much, it just kind of progressed into that. We started looking for cases. Um, well, I did, and then got to a few hundred cases, and then we realized we were onto something pretty big, and so brought in two more investigative reporters, Lisa Olson and John Tedesco, as well as John Shapley, who does video and uh, photography. The Southern Baptist Church is huge. 15.7 million members, they claim, 46,000-plus churches. What is the scale of the abuse that the Chronicle discovered? So we focused on the 20-year period starting in 1998 because it kind of provided a perfect bookends between now and 2008. And what we found was in that 20-year period, roughly 380 Southern Baptist church leaders and volunteers had been accused of sexual misconduct of some sort. Um, most of those ended in convictions or some sort of plea deal, but there were a few that we included in that number for people who you know, were successfully sued um, there was a detailed allegation in some sort of credible news outlet or that person confessed or resigned as a direct result of the allegation. And then looking forward from uh, since 2008, we found about 250 who had been criminally charged. Um, dozens of those cases are pending, but I think 220 of them ended in convictions. And how many people, how many people were affected? How many victims were there of this sexual abuse in your, in your analysis? We found at least 700 victims, and 
that was a very conservative number based on two things. One, we know very rarely do people report these things. Child sexual abuse is rarely reported by the victims, let alone makes its way through all of the legal processes and ends in a conviction. And two, we were very conservative in how we counted that number. So for instance, if someone was reported in an investigative report of having multiple victims, but there was no specific number, we counted that just as two. So there were a lot of those. And if you know how pedophiles and sex offenders usually operate, they have usually more than one or two victims. Besides the terribly alarming scale of the uh, nature of the sex abuse, there were some other things you uncovered, like the continued use of some of these people back in the ranks of the church. Yes. So part two of our story, which was spearheaded by my colleague John Tedesco, um, looked at the at least 35 people who we found had been able to find new work in Southern Baptist churches um, or Baptist churches more generally in a few cases after there had been allegations or doubts raised about them at a previous church. Often they were able to find work to tragic ends. And I think the kind of thesis of that piece was looking at how this idea of local church autonomy, the idea that each Southern Baptist church is self-governing and really no one can interfere or meddle in its internal affairs, how that system has allowed predators to kind of flourish. Um, Another thing being that the ordination processes for uh, Southern Baptists are really inconsistent, um, in many cases lax. You know, you just kind of convince a group of people at your local church that you've been called to service by God, and you go through a 60-day training, what have you, and then you're an ordained minister, and you can use that credential to move from church to church, from bigger church to bigger church, etc. And for sexual predators who are often very charming and, you know, elusive people, I guess, um, it kind of really is a perfect system. Well, now that uh, this major report has come forth in your newspapers, uh, and this happened now a few weeks ago, have there been any major changes as the church in general tried to address this problem, or have they been addressing the problem over time? You know, there are many people who would say they have not been addressing this over time, and they'll point to the 2008 reforms that were rejected. And I think that's absolutely a fair critique. I'm not saying that they're unfounded in that. But I think there's an important structural difference in the Southern Baptist Convention compared to, say, the Catholic Church that makes it a lot more difficult for change to occur. You know, there's no pope, there's no bishop who can kind of just walk out onto a stage and say, this is what we will do. Um, there's a committee on committees. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a ton of nuance to it that makes it really difficult for, you know, some, some sort of sweeping reform to come down. In the wake of our report, Southern Baptist President J.D. Greer did outline 10 things that he'd like to see done um, while he was speaking to the executive committee in Nashville. The most newsworthy one was definitely he listed 10 churches by name that he thought should be scrutinized for their handling of sexual abuse to see whether or not they were still in friendly cooperation if they still met the standards for the Southern Baptist Convention membership. Um, Two of those churches um, were very prominent, one being Sovereign Grace in Louisville, and then Second Baptist Church of Houston, which is pastored by former SPC President Ed Young and has somewhere between 60 and 65,000 members. And so that was a very promising thing. Um, you know, I, speaking to a lot of survivors related to those cases, really felt like the, for the first time they were going to get 
some sort of justice that they may have been denied by the legal system or by their church, what have you. And then a few days later, a bylaws committee that was instructed by J.D. Greer to study those things and kind of scrutinize them on, on last Saturday released a statement basically saying seven of these 10 churches do not merit any further inquiry. And I know that that really, really um, affected survivors, not just in those cases, but in you know many cases, because the biggest critique of the Southern Baptist Convention and its churches this entire time has been the idea that they're not taking this issue seriously. They're not listening to survivors. They're pretending themselves immune to this problem. And for them to you know, lift up this idea that they're going to do something and then days later say, sorry, there's nothing we can do, uh, it was heartbreaking for a lot of people. What happens in a church itself when it's discovered that a leading minister is a predator? Uh, do some of those churches just stop operating or do they kind of keep going on and act as though nothing really happened and the faithful keep coming? You know, I, I never want to paint with a broad brush for any, you know, any institution, especially with one as diverse as the Southern Baptist Convention is. But I can tell you there, there were a lot of cases where we found where victims were shamed, um, they were not believed, they were in some cases urged to get abortions, despite that being a very clear contradiction of what Southern Baptists believe. For a lot of them, that neglect, that disbelief was absolutely devastating. Now for church leaders, you know, obviously there, there, there are many church leaders who did do their jobs, who did call law enforcement, who did do the right thing and did remain there for survivors. But there were also a lot of cases that we saw where a person was just allowed to leave the congregation, sometimes find new victims at another church, at another institution, what have you. Um, so it really is a very mixed bag. One of the things your team uncovered was issues of abuse by ministers to the young. Uh, youth ministers. Will you talk about that a little? Sure. So um, that was part three of our series, and it was uh, spearheaded by my colleague Lisa Olson. And what she wanted to look at was how youth pastors have really used technology and the internet and cell phones to start grooming their victims. We found more than 100 cases where someone identified as a youth pastor was later convicted of a sex crime in 20 years. In a lot of those cases, you'd see predatory behavior would start innocent enough, for lack of a better term, where you know they get this person's number and their job within that position is to basically be the kid's friend. And you know, the tell tell the parents if they're suicidal, but for the most part, just be a popular figure. Now, when you have a 25-year-old male who's a predator and a bunch of 14 to 16-year-old girls whose numbers he now has, and he can reach out to them and kind of be a fatherly figure at this time of adolescence for them, and in turn, really start to groom them for sex, for solicitation, for online chats, for what have you. Um, it, it really is a disturbing number of cases um, that, as we found, was kind of enabled by the lack of oversight and training, but also the ability of them to have access to these young girls and boys 24-7. Um, part of the most powerful part of your story, uh, and of course always the most powerful part, is 
uh, the effect of, on the victims. And there are some very personal stories that uh, are talked about. Would you mention one or two of them, perhaps, and, uh, and see where, where this has gone at that level? You know, there was four that we really profiled in our first story, um, all with extremely different outcomes. For instance, at Houston Second Baptist, Heather Schneider was 14 when she was molested in the choir room there. And her mother told us, um, you know, the day after that, she came home and she slit her wrists. That trauma never really left her. And she died a few years later from a drug overdose that her mom still blames directly on the trauma. And what she says was mishandling of the abuse by Second Baptist officials. They've denied that they mishandled it, however. Another one, uh, David Pittman, who alleges he was abused uh, while a youth at a church in Georgia. Um, and we spoke to numerous people who also knew that youth minister who also said that they were abused. Your David Pittman, his life spiraled after that. Uh, he turned to drugs, heroin, methamphetamine, all that kind of stuff. And then one day came to terms with what had happened to him. He had kind of just put it outside of his head and refused to acknowledge what had happened. And by the time he did come forward, the statute of limitations for criminal and civil cases in Georgia had elapsed. You know, I mentioned earlier this re-traumatization of these people once they do finally come forward and they're disbelieved. He, he is not alone in telling me that that was almost as traumatic as the abuse itself. You know, you finally get the courage to talk about these things and you're told that you waited too long or, you know, you should have come forward earlier and it really does feel like you're being blamed. Um, and so what he did was he persisted in tracking where the man he says abused him worked all the way to a church in rural Georgia where the guy was still working at the time of our publication and I believe is still on staff there. And, you know, he reached out to everyone he possibly could law enforcement, SBC officials, everyone, and no one except for a handful of people really seemed to want to deal with it. Um, they couldn't, they, you know, s the idea of interfering in another church's affairs was not palatable to them, um, or they just, you know, frankly didn't want to get involved with it. And for him, it was devastating, both, you know, spiritually, he just recently was able to, you know, start believing in God again, his ability to trust and authority in power structures and people who say that they're going to help you, it really, like, it, it's still irrevocably damaged. Are there, are there any answers to this? You see sex abuse, of course, broadly in the society, even at bigger numbers, but you see it in churches, the places that should be the safest, in temples and mosques, the places that should be the safest and held to the highest standard. Is there any answer? Have uh, have your experts and have you have you uh, has your research uncovered any hope uh, in this area other than the hope of of keeping the magnifying glass on this very very uh, strongly? There's no institution that is immune from a predator. But what we found a lot was that there was a tendency to trust this person. Sexual predators are charming, they're convincing, they're, they're good at lying. For people to trust them when they say, oh, I'm sorry, I admit what I've done, it was wrong, I am sorry, and then police are never called. That mix of the decentralization of the SBC plus the, don't want to say tendency, but the frequency with which police are not notified 
um, is one of the reasons why there, there have been activists calling for a database for the Southern Baptist Convention to maintain that would track the convicted predators as well as people who had credible allegations raised against them at a church. So far, there still hasn't been any movement on that. They struck that idea down in 2008, but we are seeing a little bit more renewed energy towards that. The Southern Baptist leaders will say that registry already exists. It's called the sex offender registry. But I mean, the sex offender registry is a hodgepodge of data. People can take plea deals. They can have their name removed as a sex offender, all these sorts of things um, that may really make it so that, you know, someone who is a persistent sexual predator can go to a church after he's been convicted and say, listen, you know, I pled guilty to soliciting a minor I have served my time, I have paid my penance, and because there's no, you know, these churches don't have the ability to pull court records and all this stuff, they don't know about the 10 other charges the person faced and that were dropped or dismissed because the victims didn't want to come forward or something like that. So that's one of the most consistently pushed ideas is this database, um, and it kind of remains to be seen whether or not that will go anywhere. Robert, in scale, how does this compare to the Catholic Church situation. So, you know, again, that is a difficult thing to gauge on a pure numbers basis. The Catholics are among the, the best record keepers in, in history, really. You know, they track who went where everywhere, whether there were allegations. That's why all of these attorneys general investigations and what have you that are going on now have been so much easier. Whereas the Southern Baptists, they don't even track who was ordained where. Um, they don't track sexual abuse allegations, really none of it, which is, again, why so many people are calling for this internal database, which, you know, we went ahead and created at least the starting point for them on our website. Um, but our reporting was based on scouring the internet and news outlets for stories um, and also using court records in places where they had them available online for the most part. And so when you think about the hurdles that are in place for someone's abuse to get on our radar, one, the victim has to come forward. Two, they have to be believed by the church officials or by whoever they go to. Three, church officials have to report it to law enforcement. Four, there has to be a vibrant enough media presence in the community for a local media outlet to pick up on it and make the connection between the abuse and the church, which again, many Southern Baptist congregations are in tiny rural parts of the country where local media has been decimated. Um, and after that, that local media outlet has to be willing to publish and have news archives or a website that is still online and readily available for us to have found, which again, given how many local outlets have been uh, shuttered in the last decade, two decades, it makes it that 700 number, all of those numbers, we, we have no doubt in our mind that it is incredibly higher. What about the leadership of the uh, Southern Baptist Convention? You've mentioned some people by name. What's the general take of the people who are the, the true leaders, realizing, as you say, it's kind of a porous institution uh, with not the same kind of leadership that, say, the Catholics have? Well... I think that the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, J.D. Greer, you know, he has he certainly seems and has acted in ways that indicate that he is taking this more seriously than we've seen from any other leader in the SBC. Now, the way that the SBC works means 
what he would like to see done still has to go through committees, through you know, 47,000 representatives from the churches at their annual meeting in June. So while leadership's willingness to say we need to confront this head on and not shy away from it, it does mean something, obviously, as far as signaling the how the Southern Baptist Convention is viewing these things. But at the same time, there are constraints. And unless the local churches really, really want to take this seriously and really want to act, then it's it still remains to be seen what can be done from a leadership standpoint. I assume you and your team at the Chronicle are going to be watching this very carefully and, of course, stay on this story. I assume there's probably more to come. Um, I, yes. <laughs> yes. There have been, I hesitate to say how many because, frankly, I haven't checked recently, but since our story published, you know, we had a tip line at HoustonChronicle.com and other people have written to us, called us, what have you, and we've received hundreds of tips from people saying, you know, this happened to me. The database that you guys compiled, you know, it's missing my abuser or my daughter's abuser or what have you. And I mean, just going through those hundreds of cases is, that's a year of work right there. And that, that leaves out the many other stories that we were hearing about institutional things. Um, suffice it to say, yes, we plan to be very busy for the coming months. Robert Downen, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. Our guest was Robert Downen, lead reporter of the series of articles, Abuse of Faith, online at thehoustonchronicle.com. The conversation continues on our Facebook page, and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, come review us on iTunes or our website, religionnews.com slash beliefs. You can leave a question, comment, or tip on Beliefs Line 314-328-9133. That's 314-328-9133. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jonathan Woodward is our producer. The theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker, and thanks for listening.